We're going to talk about Matthew chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. And we're going to talk about the name, right? How many of you are named for somebody in your family or your name holds significance? How many of you? All right. So Cliff, who are you named after? What's the significance there? Your uncle Cliff? Clifton, right. All right. Anybody else want the significance of your name? Your grandmother? So grandmother Ann? Lillian. All right. Steve? Yeah. Emmett. One of my favorite Christmas specials is Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. And so think about that. Uh, my my middle name is named for my mom. I'm Patrick is my middle name, and Patricia is my mom. My first name is the result of the fact that um, my mom really liked Lyle Wagner on the Carol Burnett show. All right, <laughs> so that's where I got my first name. But uh, sometimes more descriptive of us than names are nicknames. All right? Anybody got a nickname? Found out in the first service, y'all appreciate this. Randall Hall down at work used to be called Pumpkin. He 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 shared that of his own accord earlier today. Anybody else? You have a nickname? You were something, something you were called? Charles back in the back. <laughs> the good one or the bad one? Is that what you? CK. Yeah. You know uh, Tennessee just hired a football coach. You know, we, we decided not to hire the guy that had disgraced his former university, other than like uh, a university just about an hour north of here, right? Uh, right, Johnny? Okay. Uh, you're still proud. Uh, Tennessee had a football coach, and his his name, what, anybody know his name? Butch Jones, right? That's not his real name, though. That's a nickname, because Butch apparently sounds more like a football coach than his real name. Anybody know what his real name is? Lyle, that's right. I think it's a perfectly good name, all right? Sometimes nicknames say more about us than regular. Sometimes they're just shortened forms of our name. When I was growing up playing ball, uh, especially baseball, we had a real close-knit group of people that played together, and everybody, all the moms and dads called me LP. That was just who I was. LP, they yelled that out and uh, during the game. And so some of them are just kind of initials, but some of them have meaning. Doc Hagen was in the first uh, at 4 o'clock, and... You know, obviously, there's a reason he's called Doc Hagen, because he was a doctor, right? Um, sometimes people prefer nicknames over real names, but names can carry significance. Um, I, I heard this week, or I heard a pastor talking about something he used to do with the first graders at his church, and this is a large church. He said that he would often, uh, or every year, he would make a visit to the first grade Sunday school class. And the week before, he would have the teachers collect questions for him. He said, it's always interesting the questions that first graders think their pastor can answer. He said, I remember one year he got, how many teeth do dolphins have? Like, I don't know why I'm an expert on that subject, but he looked it up and went and told them, you know. Uh, he had one, one year, one of the kids said, could you, in terms that we understand, tell us what the Trinity is? That's a pretty complicated question from a first grader. And one of the deacons told him, if you get that figured out, I'm going to come listen to your answer. But one year he got a question. He said, I will never forget. 
it said, why is God's name Jesus instead of Fred? And he said, I thought about it for a minute and thought, well, at the time I wasn't in the middle of the Christmas story. And I thought, well, that's a you know, pretty good question. Well, the thing is, Matthew chapter 1 tells us why God's name is Jesus and not Fred, right? You got your Bibles? Maybe you're open there, maybe you're not. But we're going to look at Matthew 1, 18 through 25. We're going to continue what we started last week. And last week, we looked at the first few verses of this, where we talked about the virgin birth, that, uh, that the virgin birth of Jesus was essential to our faith because it's essential to our salvation, and that when we believe in the miracle, our lives inwardly and outwardly are transformed forever. And so we have that whole part in Matthew 1, 18 is where it starts, where it talks about the birth of Jesus Christ taking place in this way, that Mary is betrothed to Joseph, and before they came together, she was found to be with child. Her husband Joseph didn't want to cause a scene, didn't want to cause her public disgrace, so he decides to do quietly what is allowed under kind of the um, secondary law, and angel appears to him, and we talked about last week, he decides to take Mary as his wife. But there's also an important thing that the angel says to him in the midst of that, and that's uh, in verse 21. And in verse 21, the angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, before we get into kind of the meat of the message, I want you to understand one thing that often gets kind of overlooked in significance here. And that is that the angel didn't say she's going to bear a son to you. She just says she's going to bear a son. But then the angel gives him the opportunity and obedience to claim Jesus as his own. In Jewish tradition... Whenever a dad named the child, it was in effect saying, this one is mine. And so when you named a child, you were declaring you were the father. And so what the angel is asking Joseph to do is to claim Jesus as his own, even though he's just been told it's not his own. Sometimes that kind of gets overlooked in the grand scheme of things that in naming him Jesus, Joseph was adopting Jesus and raising him as his own son. That one of the first acts that occurred when God entered the planet was that he was adopted by Joseph. In performing a father's role of naming the child, he was taking ownership of Jesus making Jesus his own child, declaring that that whole genealogy we read about from David down through all those people was true because this was Joseph's son now. I want you to notice the name, Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus was very common in first century, first century Israel. In fact, you know how the Social Security office puts out the top ten names every year and certain names are always on there. Um, Matthew is usually on there. David's usually on there. Christopher's usually on there. Um, on the girls' side, um, so here's something that happens. Susan and I name our children and then they end up on the 
those lists. We don't, you know, we don't, they're not on the list before. We didn't know anybody named Eli, and the day we had Eli, there were two other kids named Eli in the maternity ward there, you know. So Ava is now, of course, this year, Ava is now one of the top names just announced. So you had all those lists. Jesus would have been at the top of those lists in Israel first century. People say, well, why don't people still name their kids Jesus? Well, there are some that do, but that's kind of a high standard to put on a child at birth, right? That's kind of presumptuous to name your child Jesus. Now, the reason it was so common is that Jesus is probably not what his parents would have called him. At least that's not the way it would have sounded. Jesus is the Greek form of you may know the Hebrew, Joshua, right? Some people say Yeshua, but it's Joshua, as in like Joshua in the Old Testament. It's the same name, just the Greek form of it, okay? And so it was very common. It is amazing to me how common outside of the virgin birth the birth of Jesus was in a stable in the small little town of Bethlehem and you name him Joe, Bill. Just names that not weird at all, not different at all, the same as hundreds of other kids running around the street. Jesus. And it literally means Jehovah saves. The Lord saves. There are comparisons between Joshua in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. Not many in the fact that Joshua was God's messenger to save and Jesus actually came himself to save. And when you contrast the Old Testament where God often comes as fire and judgment and speaks through the prophets of what is about to come, and you get to the New Testament, and instead of that you have Jesus comes to save. Remember John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I still It's one of those things that when I go, I kind of do a hybrid version of the NIV and the KJV just because... I mean, where else in my life do I say, whosoever believeth, right? What's verse 17? Anybody know? Right. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. Jesus comes for the specific purpose of salvation. You know what's also interesting to me is this time of year, how many people will say something like, Christmas is all about, or what Christmas is really about. And if you listed them, there'd be 40 things that Christmas is really about. Everybody, you know, they put their own spin on it. Well, the angel here says that Christmas is about Jesus, who comes to save, rescue. No man in the history of the world had been able to do what Jesus did. In fact, the word Savior is sometimes used of other people other than Jesus, but He is the only one who is able to take that title and have it be true. In this story, when it says Jesus, for He will save, the word He there, or the one there, 
is emphatic in meaning it is he and only he that will save. He is the only one. When we go to Brazil, one of the things that I repeat when I preach is Jesus only saves. Jesus only saves. Gil, some of you all met Gil, some of you know Gil, was here a couple of weeks ago. And he used to tell me in Brazil after I'd preach, he'd say, whenever you say Jesus only saves, I just get ready to say it about three more times because I know you're just going to repeat it. It's because that's the message we're driving in. And that's here. He alone will save. You remember Luke chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus, right? Up in the tree, Jesus comes by, let's go to your house. They eat, they come out. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to pay everybody back four times. Then Jesus says what? I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus came, not so much as sometimes you'll hear, a man born to be king. Really, the story of Jesus is a king born a man to become a savior. It says Jesus came. Who, who did he come to save? The world? Is that what it says there? His people, right? He didn't say everybody. He didn't say Jesus was going to save every person. So what does it mean by his people? What would the Jews have thought it meant by his people? They would have thought it was them, right? Is that what Jesus meant? By the end of the book, what is he saying? I want you to go where? This is Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 28. He says, go into all the world, to every nation. When it says that Jesus came to save his people, it's referencing that grand design plan that God instituted from the very beginning. He came according to a promise. We'll talk about that more a little bit next week. To create a people, preserve a people, save a people. From the moment that the earth was hurled into darkness by sin in Genesis chapter 3, God is already preparing people for the Savior that would come. Remember Genesis chapter 3, right? They sin, then all of a sudden God gives out punishments, and He says to the woman, there will be one of your line, and he will be bit on the heel by the serpent, but he will crush the serpent's head. Genesis chapter 12 is where God really begins that whole process. In fact, what's interesting, if you read the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, before He calls Abram and Sarah to go to Ur, or out of Ur to go to the land that he'll show them. If you read that, some of the names of Abram's ancestors are people who were named after pagan gods. And so it wasn't just that he was taking Abram out of this land and driving him over here. He was removing him from a dead, empty religion into a vital relationship with God. And he's starting this process of taking a group of people and using them as his spokespeople in the world. And it would go through jumps and starts and hits and misses. But the whole plan unfolds over hundreds of years until we get to Jesus and he says, this is the one who is going to save his people and to be a spokesman to the world. In case we think that the Old Testament teaches that God's people are only the Jews, you think about Isaiah 49.6 that says, It's not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. This is Isaiah. I will make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. From the very beginning, there is this promise that God is going to do an amazing work and bring the world 
to reconciliation in Him. And when we get to Jesus, He says, He is the one who will save His people. It's also interesting that in Scripture, when God speaks, He says, I'm going to save my people, but because Jesus is the Lord, it's His. In the Old Testament, God's people are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and that remain faithful to the covenant, along with some others who would commit themselves to the covenant people. But in the New Testament, Jesus and His apostles teach that all people groups in the world are going to be invited to Christ. We become His people through simple trust, and once we're there, we understand the relationship. But it's not just that He's going to save His people. What is He saving His people from? Their sins. In the Old Testament, salvation was much more practical in nature. At least to the people. When in the book of Exodus, it says that God through Moses saved his people. What did he save his people from? From slavery? From the Egyptians, right? In the Old Testament, when God saves people, he saves them most of the time from atrocities that are being done to them by another country or people. So you have in Exodus that God takes his people out of Egypt and saves them from the slavery there and takes them into a new land. And they get into a new land. And one of the things, the book of Judges, we talk about that cycle of apostasy, that cycle of rebellion where they follow God and then they slip away and then God brings a judge and they cry out to God and God saves them from what? From whomever that had been oppressing them. And they get back in that cycle. And you get to David, right? David helped save Israel from what people? What part of the, who are, who's Goliath a part of? The Philistines, right? The big bad Philistines. And so you have that moment. When you get to Daniel, where is Daniel in captivity? Babylon. And the hope is that he will eventually be taken back so they can set up. When you get to, to Nehemiah, they're rebuilding the wall because God is rescuing them from the Babylonians or the Persians, right? Even in that middle time, that time between Daniel and Malachi in those books and Matthew, there's 400 years there. And even in the midst of that, they were invaded by a foreign power, the Greeks. That was the time of Alexander the Great. And there was a ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV who was such a terrible guy he takes over Jerusalem and he sacrifices a pig on the altar of God in the temple of God. Then he sets up a statue of Zeus in the midst of it and tells the Israelites to worship the statue. Or there are a group of guys that cried out to God for salvation and God brought these brothers together, the Maccabees. And they took down the army, they destroyed the statue, they cleaned the temple. By the way, you know how they cleaned the temple? By light. They had enough light to light the lamps, enough oil to light the lamps for one day. But instead it lasted eight. Eight days. Hanukkah, which is going on right now. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. So sometimes people ask, well, what's Hanukkah and Christmas? Hanukkah's been around longer than Christmas. Jesus probably celebrated. It's not more important, but... But the point is, it was God saving the people meant saving them from the Greeks. So when 
the audience is hearing this, and Matthew's writing it, and he's writing to Jews. He said, this is Jesus, and he will save his people from, they all expected to hear, the Romans. Those pesky foreigners that are in our land. But instead, he says, from themselves. We're not the first society to think that all of our problems lie outside of us that look to blame others for the issues that we're dealing with. Oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves, when we're trying to find others to blame, it just means that we haven't realized the depth of our own mess. And he says, this one will come to save people from their sin. So what's sin? Let me read you a definition, all right? This is a definition that's been used to teach children. Here's a definition of sin. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Doesn't that sound like a children's story right there? Well, it was children about 300 years ago, but things have come a little way since then. Listen again. Sin is any want of conformity unto or lack conformity to or a transgression of the law of God. Sin entered the world in Genesis. And here's what it says. This is the same group of questions used to teach children. That the sinfulness of a state wherein man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. This is what that means. Adam sinned, and it has been passed down to us. Any of you ever seen any characteristics of yourself and your kids? Good, bad, ugly? It's hard for me to deny that Eli Larson is my son, right? It's hard for Susan to deny that Madeline is her daughter. We... That we pass down traits. Scripture says that one of the traits that has been passed down from the original to now is sin. And then it says, and then we add on top of it the stuff we do. It's like the one you ever had your child try to get out of something and ends up digging themselves a bigger hole? Right? I, I remember last year, I told some of you this story. Um, last year, Eli came home with glue in his hair. How did you get glue in your hair? And he said, well, I had to stay in from recess. Well, why did you have to stay in from recess? Because I didn't get my work done. Well, why didn't you get your work done? Because I was talking when I was supposed to be doing my work. Can you see the hole getting dug? Sorry, let's back to where. So what are you doing? He goes, well, during study, this girl and I were talking. Now, wait a minute. During study hall, there's no talk. I know. Well, where was she? Oh, she had her back turned. So what did, well, she dared me to put glue in my hand. And then she said, why don't you do this? And I said, and what lesson have you learned? He said, don't put glue in your hair. I said, no, that's not the lesson. The lesson you learned here is girls will make you do crazy things. Watch out for girls. That's the lesson you've learned here, all right? He just kept digging that hole. And here's the thing about our sin. We're born with it, and then we keep digging the hole. And here's what it ends up with. This is the punishment of it. All mankind, by their fall, 
lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? Lost communion with God, wrath and curse, miseries in this life, death, pains of hell forever. And here's what the name Jesus means. He has come to save us from that. Communion with the Heavenly Father is restored. The curse has been blown away. The miseries of this life are bearable. Death is not final. And heaven is our reward. We are no longer humiliated, helpless, or hopeless because of our sin. But rather we are free from condemnation, loose from the bonds of corruption, and full of hope. The incarnation of Jesus Christ has gloriously reversed every self-imposed misery. Glory to God in the highest. And peace on earth to those on whom His favor rests. That's why He's Jesus and not Fred. Because His name means that He will save His people from their sins. Let's pray.